Hi, this is Douglas Wynn, author of Something in the Water and the Spectrophiles novels, and you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. We'll open up the guests reading an excerpt from their project and then follow up with the interview proper. Transmissions will post on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited horror literature from Gothic to postmodern, also from McFarlane. Our first transmission is with New England-based Tom Starita, a multi-genre author who has previously written Two Ways to Sunday, and growth and change are highly overrated. Tom joins us today to talk about his third book, the horror novel Delta. Welcome, Tom. Let me out! The words were a deluge, and Jason frantically searched for the nearest arc. All he could do was reach for the remotes and raise the volume. Within seconds, the television shrieked her siren song, while below, Delta did the same. It was a race to see who could burst his eardrums first. Jason's head pounded with a mixture of liquor and responsibility, and he shut the television off. He downed the last bottle and closed his eyes. It was going to be one of those nights. Best to drift off and go to sleep. At that moment, between wake and sleep, was when he realized Delta stopped yelling. Then he heard a noise outside, a thumping sound. He grabbed his phone and cycled through each camera. The screen showed nothing but the house, the surrounding area, and plenty of darkness. The only light coming from the cameras. He chose the box displaying the sealed up window when he saw it, a rabbit. It sat on its hind legs, nose twitching, a dazed look on its face. Jason watched as it fixated on the sealed up window, white hair standing on end, and then launched itself like a missile locking in on the target. A sickening thud reverberated into the night sky. The poor animal lay on the ground face down and Jason thought that was the end of it. After a couple of seconds, it shook its furry little head, sprang back to first position, and relaunched itself. When the animal stood up again a minute or so later, the camera clearly showed blood. He was tempted to go outside and shoo the animal away. But before he can get to his feet, the rabbit completed the circuit. Except this time, there would be no dramatic rising to its feet, like the end of a Rocky movie. It remained on the ground, barely twitching. What the hell is going on, Jason slurred, staring at the scene. The camera lens impassively showed the critter breathe its final breath when he noticed another contestant hop into frame. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not dealing with this shit tonight. Not tonight. Jason jumped to his feet and ran down the hallway barefoot, not so gracefully unlocking the front door. The screen door went wide as he scooted down the porch steps, receiving a splinter from the bottom one for his troubles. 
just in time to spot the new rabbit ricocheting off the house. Hey, get out of here! Jason charged at the stunned creature. Recognition eventually appeared in its eyes, and it haphazardly hopped into the woods. He made sure it left and waited a couple of minutes more to prevent anyone else from engaging in such suicidal practice. With a hint of annoyance, he scooped up the first rabbit, henceforth known as the dead rabbit, with the shovel and flung it into the woods, a delicious late night treat for someone else. A cool breeze passed through him and Jason let out a shudder. Tapping on the sealed up window, he announced, it's officially time for bed. Do you hear me? Time for bed. Jason fast walked back to the front door, muttering one last time for bed before beating a hasty retreat inside. Standing behind the screen door, he checked his watch, showing 10.28 p.m., and felt some beer trying to make a break for it. Taking a deep breath, Jason shut his eyes and steadied himself. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Feeling slightly better, he stole one last look out into the dark woods surrounding his home and noticed a scattering of glowing eyes mixed in with the trees, all staring back. We are joined this evening with Tom Starita. Tom, it is great to see you. We hope you're doing awesome. Oh, great to be here, guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no worries. It's great to have you on. And you have a new book out called Delta. So why don't you tell us about it? You know, quick plot synopsis, overview, pitch it to us. Delta is about Jason, uh, a man who lost his daughter two months prior to a drowning accident. So how can his daughter... So how can there be a, a girl claiming to be his daughter locked up in his basement? He does not know what to do. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was such an interesting premise uh, to this book um, and the way that you used current or, you know, um, current time and some flashbacks to really kind of flesh out that. Um, I'd be really curious, what was the genesis of uh, Delta? Yeah, sure. So um, so previously, I, I've written two books. I wrote a couple of screenplays, done some animation, done podcasts. So at the end of 2019, I told my wife, um, I've never done a graphic novel. Oh. And I think I, I want to do a graphic novel for 2020. Mm -hmm. So I, I found, I was put a feelers out online. I thought I found an artist. And um, I came up with the, a general idea of how the story was going to go. And uh, the artist flaked on me and bounced out. So I like the idea and I'm like, well, you know, I got to see this through. So why not just turn this into a book? So, and then COVID hit and then my, my wife got pregnant. So you've had all these different factors of being a first time dad and being stuck inside and having a good idea in my head and plenty of time to write it. So I sat down and I banged it out. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Well, since it's written now, will you revisit the idea of turning it into a, a graphic novel? Uh, I'm always open to new ideas. So if someone came along and said, we'd love to uh, to make this into some art, into some arts, oh, absolutely. I would never say no to that. If you know somebody, let me know. <laughs> well, we've talked to our fair share of comic book folks. It's always a, an interesting to hear their journey of, you know, usually they're a writer, they've got the story fleshed out. You know, it is hunting down the perfect artist that shares their vision, the mm -hmm. collaboration process. I mean, it's different for everyone, but it's always... Uh, nice to hear those stories because it's, you know, the sequential art is, yeah, unless you are the author artist yourself, it's always a, a collaborative type of uh, medium. And so, you know, different voices come through the end product and it's just, we like comics. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, 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 
well, if I if I had done the graphic novel route, it would have been a much, um, obviously it would have been a, a smaller contained story. And the the fact that I turned to a to a book, I realized, oh my god, there's there's so many different avenues I can go down. And I loved writing the story, so it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that you'd done two previous books before. I think they're called Two Ways to Sunday and Growth and Change are highly overrated, which are more inspirational and humorous. And so Delta sounds like it's your foray into horror. So were there any challenges on making that genre transition or any similarities to your press writing? Um, No, I think the bottom line is I'm dumb <laughs> and you should stick, I've been told, you should stick with one genre and build your audience and get a loyal following. But I like writing stories that I want to read. Mm-hmm. So like, each book that I've written, obviously three different genres, it's because I found a story that I want to write about. And anytime I've tried to manufacture, like, oh, like so my first book, Two Ways a Sunday, religious inspirational. There, I, I have people that love that story and they're like, well, write something else in that vein. I felt like it was artifice. I, I couldn't conjure the emotion behind writing it. And I was just writing it because I was supposed to. So when I found growth and change are highly overrated, that piqued my interest. Like, what's this guy? What's this story about? And I loved writing that one. Mm-hmm. Same thing. So it's now I'm in the humor genre. And then people are like, well, stick with that one now. <laughs> but again, I, I can't, I just, I can't force it. So when Delta, when the idea of Delta came to me, it wasn't, it, it, it's not, it's less about genre. It's more about, I like characters and putting them in situations and it just so happens that my three books, they're in three different situations in terms of religion or in terms of humor, or in terms of horror, but it's still people. And every story is about people. And that's what I like to write about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He keeps a very Depeche Mode style. People. Are- <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, really interesting to hear because I, I, I was, you know, looking at, at what you'd written before and then reading Delta and I'm like, wow, this is a, a huge departure, but I could see where the similarity would be the fact that it's the people and that, that it's really character driven. Um, so, you know, wanting to, since we're talking about characters, I was wondering if you could talk about the process of developing Jason um, and giving him life and the fact that people are such a motivating factor in your stories. Can you talk a bit more about him? Cause he, he really does have, there's a real sense about him and wanted to hear a bit more about how you developed him and what maybe some of the challenges were, and what inspired you to uh, kind of set him up to be very flawed at the same time. Sure. So it's funny. Uh, the first version of this book, um, when I finished it, I gave it to my wife and I call her the sledgehammer of honesty because she is brutally honest with everything I do in my life especially my writing. So when she finished reading it, she was like, nope, that ending does not work. And I went back and I read it. I'm like, all right, you know what? I, I see what you're saying. And that's when I realized that Jason is a, like, is a lot like, is a lot like other people in this world where they feel like they don't almost have a choice in their decisions that they just, they just one choice leads to another, but they're not really making that choice. They're kind of like out of obligation or out of responsibility, or out of you know being coerced, or whatever it may be, and suddenly you're living, you're going down a path of a life that you didn't want to live, and now you're stuck. And now, what do you do when you're stuck? And I thought that was really interesting because I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that, where you know the decisions you make at 20 or 25 directly impact 30, 35, and so on. 
So, and once I figured that out, then it just became easier to write because now he's like a real person to me. He's relatable. Um, he's not some character, like, you know, book character, a good guy or a bad guy. It's more a person that's dealing with choices and situations that he now has to make as good a decision or as bad a decision as he possibly can. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a point in the story where I feel like you kind of identify that's the crux. That's, that's where he made the bad decision. And now he's having to deal with that decision. And so it was really neat the way that you dealt with that moment. I, w I won't give it away, but I think you and I are on the same page with regards to that. Um, I also think that along with your character development, I think pacing is really important in storytelling. And I really felt like Delta was a really a slow lingering and kind of building, you know, uh, pot that's just starting to boil up, but it takes a while. And um, I was wondering um, if you encounter challenges with that. Now, you know, being uh, quite forthright, I haven't read your first or second books. So I don't know if, if they're in a similar vein, but mm -hmm. did you have challenges with, you know, writing a current, also doing flashback and, and making the decision of where, you would uh, speak in a current voice versus, you know, a flashback uh, narrative in telling your story. So um, one of the pushbacks I, I got when I sent this out for queries between agents or publishing houses is that it's slow, that, you know, you got to go faster. But it's not a movie. It's, it's not like an hour TV show. It's, it's a book. And I feel like if if you're if you're writing for what you think people want to. I, I think I think readers are smart. And I think readers are paid. If you pick up a book, you're not expecting two pages in to know everything and to be, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a car going down 90 down the, the Autobahn. You know, if, if you, if you rush, you miss details. If you miss details, then the whole narrative falls apart by the middle towards the ends. Um, I would rather, especially with this book, I, I really want to build a foundation. So that way, if you stick with it, because I mean, obviously, it, you know, life is, fast and life is tough and if you don't have time to read a book and this is going too slow all right i get you thanks for buying it anyway <laughs> um but if you're gonna stick with it i i want to lay that foundation so that way from the middle and then definitely towards the end you are completely bought into every character you're completely bought into their choices you understand what they're doing and who they are and i feel like that's a much more pleasurable reading experience at least for me um, I also like kind of like meandering around. There's like a chapter in the book of just about people in the town and the bar that I enjoyed writing just because I like I like just meeting new characters in the in the in the town. And um so yeah, um and in terms of in terms of going backwards and forwards and um that was that was to break it. I, I didn't want it to be monotonous in terms of like I, I wanted the sense of like you're trapped in the house to build. But at the same time, though, you need a little release. And if I go back, that gives the reader a chance to breathe. And it's also, I understand when pe if people are reading at night or at you know their, their job at work during lunch, you need that natural pause for someone to put it down. And they don't want to put it down, but this is a good spot to put it down. So I felt like going backwards and forwards gives people a, it's an easier way to read it, I suppose. I actually if that made any sense. Oh, yeah, it totally did. I mean, because I, I kind of like the fact that the chapters are a little bit shorter. So I could do a different, you know, if I had more time, I could read a bit more. If I needed to go go a little less, I could could do that. But I always like to try to find a natural break. Um, I actually liked uh, your pacing because I felt that um, 
you really do start at that very core like you said trapped in the house and then you just you start kind of pushing against you know the boundaries but you do it in a slow way and i i actually liked that you you didn't miss the important spots because that really helped to understand why jason was doing what he was doing or why he was feeling the way that he was so i actually enjoyed that so i just wanted to add that in thank you and it, there's nothing worse than when you're reading a story and there's a decision to be made and you don't buy why the character's doing it because the author, for whatever reason, whether it's pacing or whatever it all, so you fat, hurry it up. If, if you, if you miss that, it, at least for me, it takes me out of the book because now I'm, I want to believe the rules that you've set up so I can enjoy the story. And if I don't believe the rules or why you're making decisions now, it's like, all right, you're doing this because it's a part of the plot and you've got to get from A to B instead of just being a natural A to B. I, I know for, you know, newer authors that are kind of just breaking into it, they try to write that cinematic style, which is just a lot of this happens, then this happens, then this happens, because they're trying to replicate, you know, a movie going experience. And that doesn't really translate to a reading experience. I'm okay with slow burns. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, one of my all time favorite horror films is Carnival of Souls. That mm, yeah. is slow, but <laughs> but it's slow in a good way because it's yeah. it's that brooding atmosphere. And, you know, the successor movie of Carnival of Souls would be Sixth Sense. And I would say almost all M. Night Shyamalan's movies are that very slow burn that has, you know, not just his trademark reveal at the end, but it's it's soaking it in. And, you know, it's, yeah, and, people and it's, who like the old gothic stuff, that's yeah. what they want is that that heavy atmosphere where I don't want to say meanders, but, you know, just soaks it in. Well, and, and like you were saying, Tom, it really does help to understand the motivation of your characters. And I think, you know, we get a lot of that. But then also I felt like the locale was actually very interesting because it's not one that I'm necessarily familiar with. So it, it did intrigue me as well. You know, a small town, you know, people, you know, there's some familiarity because, okay, obviously this is a town where people know each other. And, and as you start, you know, pushing those boundaries and we start meeting some of the other people, um, you know, it's, you start to like, oh, okay, I bet they fit this. This is, oh, they were high school friends. Okay, that's very interesting. And you you get you get a little bit of the inside joke, but there's also enough to kind of like put it at, well, that's their time, not not me, but I understand that that they have a thing, you know, what I'm so anyway. And I, but I think also the key is if you're gonna do this, you better pay off. <laughs> because if you if you're gonna be a slow book, that's fine. And if you're gonna meander, that's fine. But at some point, you got to step on the gas. And if you don't step on the gas, then it's like, all right, you know, what are we doing here? So I, it's like a fine line to walk, but I'm happy you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. So, Tom, you've done a handful of different genres and a handful of different mediums now. So you should ask, you know, since you kind of don't want to stay in one place, uh, you know, what's the next like medium or genre that you do want to give a, a try to? Well, it's a funny story. So this is the first time I'm, I think I'm going to stick with this because um, I'm, I'm going to write the Delta sequel. And and I was always against sequels because I always felt... No, no, I shouldn't say that. I was personally always against a sequel of something I did or wrote because I always felt like I, was, I would be forcing it. Like, I have a natural ending and now I'm writing a sequel just because I should. But with this story, 
I waited until like it became obvious what I want to do and what I want to say. And then once that appeared, I'm like, all right, now I've got a story. I'm not just writing it because I should. I'm writing because I want it. And if I'm going to devote 12 to 18 months, well, I've got a two and a half year old upstairs and a dog and a wife and a job, <laughs> you know, I, I better, it, it better be enjoyable to write. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, that's very cool. Um, so um, as we get uh, close to wrapping up, Tom, um, we'd love to hear, uh, well, obviously you're going to be writing a, a sequel to Delta, which will be great. Um, do, are there other future plans, anything that you can share with our, with us and our listeners? Um, I could say that I've been contacted about turning this into a movie. I, I could say that. Wow, <laughs> congratulations. So, I mean, I, I won't, I won't say anything else besides that. Cause you know, whatever, but yeah. Um, so I mean, and that's the dream, right? To, to see something I wrote on the big screen or on the small screen. So cross finger crossed, but right now there's a strike. So we got to wait uh, and see yeah. once the strike settles, maybe I'll, you know, a, a clearer path. Oh, that'd be wonderful. And congratulations. How exciting that Thank is. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks for so much for coming on the, the show. And we're hoping that Delta is successful and also crossing our fingers that, you know, interest does turn into a proper adaptation uh, mm -hmm. for big screen art, streaming screen, or, you know, <laughs> wherever it winds up on. But super congrats. And we also wish you the very, very best. Oh, listen, thank you very much for having me on. I, I really like your show. So when you guys said yes, I'm like, yes, this is great. So I can't wait to hear this episode and many, many more. Thank you very much. Our second transmission is with Beth Cato. Beth, aside from being an awesome baker of fine breads and sweets, is an author of poetry, steampunk, and alt history fiction. She is known for her Clockwork Dagger series and her Blood of the Earth trilogy. Beth joins us today to talk about her new novel, A Thousand Recipes for Revenge, which embraces the swashbuckling genre. Welcome, Beth. Hello, this is Beth Cato, and I'm going to be reading to you a short excerpt from my new novel, A Thousand Recipes for Revenge. I have three epigraphs for you. Uh, epigraphs are essentially a few sentences or a paragraph that begin a chapter that can be a quote or other things. In the case of my book, it's very heavily based on recipes and talks about different gods in the world. So that's the focus of these epigraphs. Commoners believe that a chef is best identified by their distinct uniform dress. But in all truth, the best way to recognize one is by how they dress a chicken. Excerpt from Manual for Tour Chefs. The shelf must be cool and dark, the air moist. The cheese must have space around it and be turned once each day upon its mat. If the conditions are right, Gist's presence will soon be known. A smell of yeast and fruit should be present within three to four days. Then, over the next five, the surface of the cheese will dry and be kissed by white mold. If it grows especially thick, turn the cheese twice or thrice daily. 
Show thanks to Gist by whispering to him your choicest secrets. Act from a recipe for a brie cheese. <laughs> and, the, and the last one. One may assume that a chef or cook specializing in butchery must be strong to lift meat and hew bone, but consider also the experts in patisserie who whisk egg whites for periods to develop the stiff peaks required for light cakes or refreshing syllabubs. These artists boast of upper arms like those of a pugilist. Excerpt from Book for Cooks to Excel as Do Chefs. We're talking this evening with author Beth Cato. Beth, it is wonderful to see you. We hope you're doing awesome. I'm doing great. It's great to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a while, but it's always great to see you. Uh, we have fond memories when we hung out at the LA Festival of Books way back when, yep. getting your cookies and stuff like that. And <laughs> uh last September, mm -hmm. we got to see you there. Yes, we did. But, uh, you know, uh, since I think the first time we got to hang out, you know, back then was the Clockwork uh, Dagger books. Now mm -hmm. we have a new book, A Thousand Recipes for Revenge. So, Beth, tell us about overall plot. Sell it to us. Well, first of all, to summarize the setting, it's inspired by Musketeer era France. So it's very 16th century vibes, but it's a secondary world. So it's not confined to Earth. A lot of the, the politics and the geography does correlate to our world, but there are also distinct differences. So I have two perspectives in the book. Uh, they are a mother and daughter who do not know each other. Uh, Ada is a rogue chef. She has a, a tongue blessed by the five gods, and she has a empathetic ability to relate to food and may be used to the greatest effect, whether that is mundane or magical. And due to uh, very complex circumstances, she had to give up her, her daughter Solon at birth. So Solon is now 16, and she has been raised as a princess of the neighboring country of Breeze. So they are now essentially in the same city in the same country, but do not know each other. Solon is about to fall into a whole bunch of court intrigue because uh, there's a lot going on between the different countries in the in the continent and abroad, and uh, Ada to have assassins drop on her doorstep. Uh, so mischief ensues from there. Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, Beth, can you tell us how your novel came about? What might have been the catalyst for it? <laughs> well, if people know anything about me online, it is that I love cheese. No! <laughs> That's kind of become my, my online branding. It wasn't planned that way. It was just I'm going to share what I love and I love, I've had a baking blog called Ready or Not for years. And I love, I have this mission to find and try every cheese that I can. And I keep a cheese log that tracks, you know, my, my finds and my, my cheese tourism essentially. And I've done a, a number of short stories that involve cheese magic and things like that. And it is a very real art that has been practiced in our world for thousands of years. Um, tyromancy, magic of cheese. And I was like, well, I want to figure out a way to make that work in a book. So that's what I did. So everything's trying to figure out how to make cheese magic into a, a plausible. Aw. Well, we we love cheese here. I mean, one of our favorite cheeses. And I'm pretty sure you've had it. I think you've mentioned it. But uh, Cougar Gold. So, Beth, one of the challenges you had when you had uh, written your uh, prior series, the Blood of the Earth series, was you did an incredible amount of research. It was, you know, alt history in San Francisco, a lot of uh, Chinese culture coming into it. Uh, but as you said earlier, a uh, thousand recipes is not on this world, but there's a lot of cheese making in it. So I got to ask, what was the research process like for this? Did you draw like from your own, 
you know, body of knowledge from this years of baking and cheesery or, you know, what other kind of research you did? What was it like and how different what it, was it from your previous series? It definitely wasn't as strenuous as the Blood of Earth trilogy. That one wasn't because since I was doing alt history, if I was going to mess with history, I wanted it to be pur purposeful. Um, here I had a little bit more flexibility, but I was trying to stick with a France and a, a European continent that uh, not have colonialism impacts for the large part. So uh, meant avoiding things like green beans and for the you know and potatoes and uh, cocoa beans, uh, stuff like that. Fortunately, one of my great loves just to read on my own is food history books. And I, and I already have a, a library of cheese books that also go into cheese history. So really, uh, it meant purposefully going out and getting more books on that subject, uh, getting more things about cheese history too, but also uh, bread, uh, its evolution, um, things along that lines. And also, because I wanted to get the voice right for the period, uh, reading up on classics like uh, Alexandre Dumas and going through a number of the Three Musketeers books and really getting a feel for the time period through those. I got, got to ask uh, real quick a side question because I, I I know we've talked about on, you know, this offline in the past of YouTube shows, and I know you're a fan of Townsend's. Um, yes. But did you watch, I, I think it's uh, Tasting History of Max Tucker? Is that his Max name? Miller. I or mean. something like that. It's called Tasting History. I think I've seen a little bit of that. Did he just have a book come out? I think so. Yeah, I think he did recently. Mm -hmm. Okay, then I yeah, then I think I saw him even on some shows for that. Yeah, cool. I, I, we we watch a lot of uh, YouTube food shows over here from Sorted Foods, and also a lot of cocktail shows. So again, the, the foodie aspect of a thousand recipes mm -hmm. for revenge this gives us that nice warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a show on Netflix a few years ago called Lords and Ladles. Uh -huh. That was uh, out of Ireland and had three master Irish chefs and they were sent to an estate in the countryside and they would each be assigned different tasks. But the big thing was uh, one of them had to recreate a full feast from like the 16th through 19th century that was done on the ground. And they had to do everything from using and different gelatins and coxcombs and all of the stuff that you know we would even find nasty now and they had to do and then the, they also had people going out and foraging or actually going to the the butcher and getting these more obscure meats it was really cool i, I love the alliterative title uh lords and ladles was it that's awesome <laughs> yes <laughs> we're gonna have to look and see if that uh still exists um, more binge watching for us yeah more binge watching <laughs> Um, Beth, as you alluded to, um, with regards to kind of the plot uh, and placing of this book, uh, one of the things that you obviously love to do is to craft magical systems and the world building around it. So in 1000 Recipes, you go with a new magic system um, that's culinary based. Um, how did you go about creating a new magic system from ground up? And how much uh, did you draw from your passion of baking? Quite a bit. It was a good chance to geek out <laughs> over things like that. And, you know, we take for granted that, you know, we go to the store and buy yeast. And, you know, it's in like nice, neat granules and things like that. I mean, back then it was, you know, you kept your starter alive and, or you had something like, you know, 
use byproducts from winemaking or even used um, the skins of grapes to get wild yeast from that. Or you had uh, beer brewers in the area and used barm, uh, brewer's yeast, which was very common um, going through that period. Yeah, it's it was so much fun to develop that, but it was also really challenging. And I was kind of at a loss of how to get everything on what to use as my glue to tie everything together. And that is when I decided, okay, I need to invent gods. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I came up with five gods of cuisine. And they there's overlap between their duties and all that, but essentially that they, you know, food means everything. And in this world, I mean that is true even more so than ours mm -hmm. i yeah i'm reminded of an an eddie azard uh sketch where he's talking about crap gods he says there's crap gods out there jeff the god of biscuits and you do not have <laughs> crap gods in your book that's for sure <laughs> uh yes but there can be cake or death that's right yeah, yes <laughs> so so Beth, I, I'm mostly familiar with your steampunk stuff. So, you know, reading a thousand recipes for revenge is, you know, the more swashbuckling uh, three slash four musketeers, whatever you, know, yes. you want to go with. So what was the transition from, you know, steampunk to, you know, more Victorian and more nautical to, uh, to this, to the more, yeah, three musketeers, swashbuckling setting like. Uh, how'd you make that transition and why? I mean, did you just want to do a different type of setting to challenge yourself, do something new? Well, that's a very, my answer for that is very complex and goes to just some basic facts about the inherent nature of publishing. And the fact, sad fact is right now, steampunk is not sellable for the most part. It, a few years ago, the steampunk market died. I managed to barely catch it when I did, especially for Clockwork Dagger. Clockwork Dagger did very well because of that. But by the time um, Breath of Earth came out, the downward slope was already beginning. Aww. So just for a marketing angle, I couldn't write another steampunk series. It, I knew for a fact it, it would be very hard odds to sell it. Now, give it another five, 10 years, I have no doubt that steampunk is going to come back around because it's awesome and it's tremendous fun. And there's, it's really a shame that it kind of withered out when it did, because at, it was at that point that a lot more unique voices were starting to come up. We were starting to get more of the non-white, you know, England-based steampunk. And there was just, there's so much more potential there to see other voices come in. So I really hope it comes back around sooner rather than later. But for me, um, I wrote a couple other books in the meantime, and uh, they didn't sell. So there's actually more of a buffer time in there than is visible to the public. And then it was coming up with this and knowing, okay, I still need to avoid steampunk and things like that. Well, what about going for this era of history as my basis instead? Because I don't really, because, you know, when you're coming up with book ideas, you have to think, is it going to sell? What is saturating the market too much right now? Because, you know, urban fantasy is another one that's kind of, you know, petered out at this point, which is another one that I love and read tons of. So it's, you know, looking at different eras of history and trying to find a new area that hasn't had a lot of recent hits or recent influx and just trying to make my own little path to success as much as I can. Now that, that's pretty astute, um, you know, being able to observe what's happening in the market, because I think sometimes with 
um, like when you go to the cons, you think mm -hmm. that there's still kind of that interest, but it's kind of on a microcosm kind of level. So it, it's preaching to the choir when you're at the con in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had no idea that steampunk was, I mean, I get genres are cyclical, you know, it's mm -hmm. everyone's background. I just, I'm not part of that community. I, I, I'll be honest, you know, Beth Cato is really the big steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're very glad though that a thousand recipes came out and I actually like the kind of swashbuckling stuff. You know, my, my background mm -hmm. is peplum studies, you know, the sword and sandals genre, all the same actors and same sets and everything since they mm -hmm. want to see the book. Oh, we'll use those with Zorro knockoffs, <laughs> three musketeers yeah. knockoffs. And so they all kind of congregate together in that. Well, and then you get the Scarlet Pimpernel, which mm -hmm. is very much the time period I'm playing with too. Cool. And that's, all, that's very much like Zorro. So much like Zorro. And one of my favorite stories, by the way, let's go. Anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I know I love, when you can find the Easter eggs in stories. So um, even though uh, A Thousand Recipes is a different setting and it's a different world, are there any Easter eggs from uh, Revenge for, or excuse me, from Clockwork Dagger's series or maybe Blood of the Earth trilogy? I don't have any Easter eggs from my other books, but what I do traditionally do across my books is I go back to my own roots in fantasy and my deep love of what are now classic video games. Mm -hmm. So if you look, you'll see some names and some references that go back to the early Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest games. And, you know, not tons of them, but just sprinkled here. But there are definitely some of those in the new books, including I just finished up my copy edits for the sequel, um, A Feast for Starving Stone. And my copy editor, I knew that they'd gotten me a good copy editor because I had a note listed that, is this a Final Fantasy VI opera reference? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you found the Easter egg. I you know, replied in all caps with another comment. I was like, yes, you found one. Yep, you, you nailed it. So you're saying there might be a chance in the sequel that there will be a cameo from Rocket Slime? No, I, I no, 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 sli no slimes, but um, there is a character who you've probably already encountered in your reading called Ragnar. Mm -hmm. And Ragnar is a character from uh, Dragon Quest IV. So, and I, I always love the name. So I, I use that and I channel some of his character attributes into this, this new version too. Oh, very cool. That That's really cool. And I didn't know that about you, Beth. I didn't know you were into video games. So that's very cool. I like that. That was my gateway to the fantasy genre when I was um, 11 years old was going deep into, especially Final Fantasy II, the American release for Super Nintendo, which now we know by the proper Japanese Final Fantasy IV designation. And that's what got me into the fantasy genre overall. Wow, and what a what a great way to to uh, segue into fantasy through that particular video game, which has had a really um, incredible long uh, longevity and and continues to be very popular. I'm a Chrono Trigger. Yeah, well, it it changed my life. I mean, it it inspired my creativity. Going through incredibly dark, horrible teenage years, and it's how I met my husband because we were both on a Final Fantasy mailing list together. So yeah. it you know shaped my life in all kinds of ways. That is so neat. Well, Beth, you already kind of dropped this bomb with a sequel coming out, but, you know, we got to ask, what's some upcoming news and events you want to share? And it sounds like one of them is already in the, uh, uh, about to come out of the oven, so to speak. 
<laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, A Thousand Recipes for Revenge is out on June 1st uh, for World Relief. Right now, as we record this in May, it is on Amazon First Reads for that exclusive group. And if they're a Prime member, they can get it for free. Or if they are not in Prime, they can get it for $1.99. And that's true in the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada. But then it's going to be worldwide on June 1st. And that means paperback and audiobook, which I am especially excited for because I never had an audiobook release before. Oh, congrats. And yeah, so, and then of course, ebook is available for everyone on the first two. Oh, I'm hoping the audiobook is one of those that has ambient sounds in the background because I'm assuming some of the ambient sounds might be, you know, baking, sizzling and, you know, <laughs> going on in the background. That I don't know. I haven't I haven't gotten to listen to it yet, so I don't know. Oh, cross fingers. Yeah. <laughs> but I do know the voice actress is is phenomenal. I was able to hear some samples of her reading and it was it was really good. Well. Congrats on first audiobook and also congrats on, you know, a thousand recipes for revenge for coming out. I know there's been a, you know, a, a small little window there that, you know, after the uh, blood of the earth series and that you were doing, you know, poetry and, you know, things here and there. So it's so good to see a, a big book come out from you. So uh, again, congrats, Beth. And thank you so much for coming on to talk about your new book. Well, thank you. It's been so good to talk to you again. And maybe we can do this again when the sequel comes out. Heck yes. <laughs> and that concludes our last transmission for this episode. We'd like to thank Douglas Wynn for providing this episode's bumper. We had the honor of conducting a long-form interview on a Fragments episode last September in which we discussed his collection, Something in the Water and Other Stories, published by Weird House Press. We wish Douglas continued success. Recently, we picked up a card game, Cthulhu Gloom, by Keith Baker and published by Atlas Games. With the tagline, The Game of Unspeakable Incidents and uh, Squamous Consequences, we had to check out this cosmic horror game. Our main HP Lovecast episode dropping mid-June will be a little bit of a departure for us as we'll share actual gameplay and our thoughts of the game. For our transmissions episode dropping at the end of June, we'll be returning to the hollowed halls of Cryo Chamber as we interview Maximilian Oliver of Council of Nine. We'll also be interviewing Hal C.F. Estelle, He's an author, co-organizer of CocoCon, and organizer of Apocalypse Later Film Festival. We hope you'll join us for both episodes. So please reach out to us if you'd like to be a guest on Transmissions. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>